Hello! Welcome, here we are with another discast. It's 2022 marches inexorably and brutally forward. <laughs> I'm here today with Anne Applebaum, whom I've known forever. I think since we were kiddies at the New Republic, right? Way back in the 90s. In the sometime. 90s, early 90s. Something like that. Right, but you knew my husband at Oxford. I knew your husband pretty well at Oxford. Um, <laughs> well, let's we'll talk about that we'll in a get, minute. We'll get to that. <laughs> All right, okay. So Anne is... Well, has many hats, but she's been writing a great deal about Ukraine and Russia and Putin. She's the author of Red Famine, which was an astonishing a book about Stalin's war on the Ukraine, uh, one of the most brutal acts of mass starvation since, since Ireland, I guess, since, since mm. the British in Ireland, except on an even greater and more terrifying scale. Um, staff writer at The Atlantic, as I said, um, had a really fascinating life and journey to this moment, which I hope to go into. So, Anne, welcome to the Dishcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, you are for so inviting me. <laughs> You're welcome. We need to understand <laughs> this question a lot more. But I always start with this question. So, uh, how did you get here? Where did you grow up? So, I grew up not that far from this studio uh, as the crow flies. I grew up in northwest Washington. Um, I went to school in Washington, spent my whole childhood in Washington. Um, I experienced Washington not really as a political city, but as a sort of nice and at that time much more sleepy town than it is now. Um, and, you know, it was, I wouldn't say it was small town, but it wasn't big city either in the 1970s. No, it, even since I've been living here since the 80s, it's, 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 a, it's a very different city now than yes. it was back then. Did you, what high school did you go to? I went to Sidwell Friends High School. There you go. Which at that time was a kind of hippie Quaker school right. um, before children of presidents started to go there. And my teachers wore blue jeans. And in your senior year, you could get counseling on how to not be drafted because they were conscientious <laughs> objectors, all the Quakers. Right, the Quakers. Right. So it came from that tradition. Yes. Um, no, 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 no. They were Quakers. I mean, I, 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 they still are. I, I, don't, I don't. Yeah, the, the Friends, they call the it. Friends. Sidwell Friends, right? That's right. That's what it's, that's what it's cool. That's right. Um, then I went to college in the U.S. I went to Yale, but I think that maybe thing that is more important is that right after I left college, I went to England. I had a Marshall Scholarship, and then I quit my Marshall Scholarship in the winter of 1988 and moved to Poland. Um, I arrived in Poland in October, sort of October, November. 1988, and the first thing I wrote about, I went there to become a freelance journalist. The first story I wrote was Mrs. Thatcher's arrival in Warsaw, which if you remember, which you might, uh, she showed up in Warsaw with kind of boots and a fur coat and a fur hat, <laughs> like the Tsarina, you know, <laughs> and went to, swept around the country, went to see General Jaruzelski, who was then the leader of Poland, this is before the fall of communism, went up to Gdańsk to meet the opposition. This is when they were in, some, you know, in a church in Gdańsk, which is where you met the opposition in those days. Um, then she came back to Warsaw, and my favorite memory of her is she went, there was a kind of, um, this was the very end of communism, and there was a kind of private farmer's market in central Warsaw called Halek Jabowska. Later, I lived right next to it. Um, and she 
went around the market. She wanted to show her support for freedom and free trade. So she went to this market and, I mean, she caused hysteria. I mean, so there was hundreds of journalists following her around this itty bitty farmer's market. And she had the British ambassador right by and she would point to a jar of pickles and say, I would like that, please. <laughs> and the ambassador would run behind her and he would pay, you know, and she, she would, you know, of course, Mrs. Thatcher, like the queen, doesn't carry money. Uh, <laughs> Um, this was in her very late, sort of like late 80s phase, before she went, 80s. just as she was about to go bonkers, but not just quite. Exactly, just before she went bonkers. But she was, <laughs> she was really, ma she was marvelous on this trip. And she was a cult figure, I presume, and in Poland. she was a cult figure, the Iron Lady, you know. Uh, and she was, and, and this was, of course, also right at the moment. This is 1988. This is the moment when actually Glasnost has begun in Russia. Mm. Things are beginning to change. And in the February of that year, the polls had something called a round, there was sort of so-called round table discussions. The opposition started talking to the government and then they had elections, the first kind of semi-free elections that spring. So I arrived really at the beginning of that process. Then I was there while it unfolded. Um, and so as a something 24-year-old journalist, something like that, my this was this was my story, um, was the end of communism in Poland and then the end of communism in Europe and then the end of communism everywhere else. The biggest story of, of our generation in many ways, and you had a front row seat to it. I did, and it, it, it you know, it affected me a lot. I mean, it, it, first of all, it, you know, gave totally distorting view of journalism. Like, for the rest of my life, I'll be writing happy stories and be on the front page, you know. And so, um, nowadays, I've, I've had younger journalists say to me how envious they are, because now big stories are awful stories, you know, terrorism or horrible wars and you know, this was this was a really fun story I mean it was uplifting and it was cheerful and people were happy I mean there were some nuances to that you know there were um, but it was um, it felt like a moment when a lot of things were possible yeah um, and and that and the idea that this was possible that change was possible that democracy was possible that autocracy isn't forever obviously this is something that shaped me for years and years yeah, it shaped a lot of us, and I think a lot of that buoyancy, in a way, enthusiasm of the late 80s, early 90s, the sense that we're remaking the world in freedom. I mean, we had these, every piece you did was, well, there's democracy coming in Southeast Asia, there's That's democracy right. coming here, there's democracy coming there, and that was, and then, of course, we had, uh, we'd had the successful intervention in Bosnia, we, 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 what we were about to, we, it was... I think you can't really divorce that atmosphere from the ambition of Western foreign policy at that yes. point, the sense that we could do anything. It gave us all a sense of, a Whiggish sense of history really yes. moving in the right direction. Yes, yes, yes. That, that, there, that, there is, that history is linear and it's progressive and it goes one way. Um, um, and, uh, you know, of course this was wrong. And I, some of the writing I've done recently is about why it was wrong and how it's wrong. Um, the book I wrote, a um, year or two ago was about that. You yeah. know, just history is, in fact, circular, and things go backwards as well as forward, and nothing is inevitable, neither progress nor decline. But the, the, the optimism and the excitement of that moment stays with me still. Um, yeah. And I still look for it, and I, when I encounter it in people, I'm, I'm cheered by it. Um, and the, you know, the people who still believe that what they're doing is worth it because they can change things for the positive are the people in the world who impress me the most. This was our generation in, in some respects that, that we grew up and witnessed as we came of age, this incredible moment of 
of, of really unadulterated good news. Do you think that was, do you think, I mean, that it had an effect on our judgment that we actually became a little dewy-eyed and a little uh, not circumspect enough about the possibility of bad things or the consequences of our actions that might in the long run come back to haunt us? I think we became overconfident about the attraction of democracy and the attraction of autocracy. And we forgot that there is an attraction to autocracy and that autocracy also has a strength. Um, and the um, and democracy has weaknesses. Um, so I think that's 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 an important thing that we forgot. We, as I said, the person who's written best about this is really Tim Snyder. But we also had this sense of inevitability that because it is now inevitable that the world will be democratic, and that our country will go on being democratic, there isn't that much that we have to do. You know, we can just go on whatever, making money or painting paintings or, you know, watching Seinfeld, watching Seinfeld. And we don't have to actually do anything because everything's going to be fine because, you know, we have the best, you know, we live in the best of all possible worlds and and it will always be like that. And I think that was, that was a big mistake. And then I think also, yes, I mean, I think, um, I mean, this is, you know, this is a cliche by now, but yes, I mean, I think there was a certain amount of hubris about America and America's power and what America could achieve in other countries and, um, you know, and, and the attractiveness of our, our system everywhere and the, even, you know, the, um, the suitability of it everywhere. Um, and so we became overconvinced by the experience of 89 and the 90s. How long um, did you stay in Poland? So I basically never left. Um, I'm here in Washington for a couple months, but I live in Poland. <laughs> uh, so as you know, I, I married a, a Pole. Where did you meet him, actually, Radek? So I married Radek, who is um, a Pole who went to Oxford because you encountered him there, at, which was a whole series of pieces of luck and accident. He was a kind of, you know, he left Poland at age 18. And anyway, it's a longer story. But I met him in, Pol- in Warsaw. Um, that was in sort of August 89, which is the month when everything changes. He then went away for a bit. Then he came back um, in November, and we drove together to Berlin on the day that the wall fell, wow. the night that the wall fell. Um, and so officially— And it's, it's Valentine's Day today that we're speaking. <laughs> so uh, happy Valentine's to Radek. Thank you. And this wonderfully <laughs> romantic story of traveling together on the fall of the It Berlin was Wall. a good story. It actually got us invited to the 25th anniversary of the wall because there was a German politician. Radek was then the, the he then became a Polish politician and he was then the, um, the speaker of the Polish parliament. And the speaker of the German parliament invited us to, to come knowing this little piece of background. So, Radek, uh, is a force of nature, I would say. I mean, I haven't seen him in forever because we keep missing each other when he's here, but uh, it's hard to explain. Maybe listeners can... He's just just an extraordinary, charismatic person, I think. Charming. At the time, was playing a sort of faux reactionary fop at Oxford, I would say. He's Uh, given that up now, yeah. Yeah, but it was incredibly amusing (laughs) at the time. Uh, And it was very much in league with the times at at that point at Oxford. It was was the bride's head years. It was basically bride's head years, we say. I mean, just because the bride's head show had appeared on TV and we all showed up the next year thinking, well, we want to have our teddy bears. uh, But 
Raddick was just a, a real character in so many ways. Very dry, very wry, hard to read at first. Always super charming. Uh, everyone had a crush on him, uh, <laughs> including yours truly. Not to, but you know, he bla- he just swept forward on his 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 train of of charm, and we all knew he was going somewhere. We didn't quite realize that he would. He would he would have such a, a career in Polish politics. And yeah, so he was foreign minister. Yeah. Um, he's now in the European Parliament, but he's now you know he's a he's part of the the I was I would even, I would say the liberal center right, but I don't even know if you can call it center right anymore. He's a sort of he's a Polish liberal, and but a Polish nationalist as well. I, I mean, depending on what you mean by nationalist, but uh, yeah, Polish patriot. Patriot. Let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah. And, and and we anyway we have a house there and I'm there part of every year. In Warsaw? No, we have a house. Well, we have a little place in Warsaw, but we have a, ha- a house about three hours from Warsaw in the countryside, which is huh. where you know we, we bought it, renovated it, restored it. Um, so in Poland, you you're both a public intellectual and also political spouse in some kind of way did you ever have was that ever a problem you, I mean it, so, it's that hard thing to balance fortunately in Poland nobody's very interested in spouses they don't have the same role that they have in US politics and in maybe UK politics no even in UK it's like no. th- this, this whole first lady thing is is a, it's a very American thing yeah no and so people weren't that interested. I mean it was this sort of thing where I would show up at the political meeting and people would look at me like what is she doing here you know <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I kind of stopped going. Um, so it wasn't actually that big a conflict. I mean, and actually most of the time that he was in politics, there wasn't a huge conflict because I, you know, I just don't write about Polish politics or I didn't used to. Right. Um, I'd started to do more when he left um, because I thought it was okay. And he's a European member of parliament? He's a member. So the European, there is a thing called the European Parliament, as you know. Which, I do. Which, um, which but maybe not, Americans but, don't. No, but I was going to say most Americans probably don't. But there is a European Parliament, which people, you know, that has representatives from all the members of the European Union. And he's in that. And he's, a, he's elected from Poland to that. And so that's what he's doing now. But he is also a fairly vocal member of the Polish opposition now, which is in opposition to this very um, kind of neo-authoritarian I would say populist, but that's really that, not the right word, but ruling party. Where does he align in the European Parliament? There are various blocks. He's in, he's, is he in with the British Tories or is he well, in Well, the British with... Tories are out now, but no. Yeah. no there's a, oh, yeah, there's, of course. But, sorry, the, excuse me. <laughs> the, there's a, so there's, a, there's sort of the, the German Christian Democrats. Yeah. Have, there's a sort of center-right block that they're yeah. part of. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what his party's in. So as you're in Poland, you develop, obviously, an interest in European <laughs> politics and Russia must loom large. So, so I actually studied Russian in college. Yeah. Um, and the first big project I did, I mean, I wrote a, I wrote a short travel book um, in the early 90s. But my first really big, I don't know, intellectual project or the first big thing I did um, in my life really was to write a book about the gulag. Um, and this, was, this grew out of the awareness that there were lots of new archives open, that there were sources that hadn't been there before, um, it, it, you know, the, the idea that you could do something that nobody else had done, that you could read documents that nobody else had seen, sort of drew me, drew me into it. And I, I think I initially didn't realize what a big project it was, but it was a ten-year project. Yeah, um, and it was exciting though, because suddenly huge amounts of records were available that had never been known. You could discover 
a lot about Russian or Soviet rather foreign policy. So uh, yeah, so my my book wasn't about foreign policy. It was about the Soviet camp system this, right. and the repression system. But yes, there was there was um, the 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 you know the the access to things that had been hidden was incredible. And and at that time in Russia in the '90s, people were really willing to help you. So uh, you know. You know, I, I have a, one of my f- favorite recollections. I showed up in a town called Arhangelsk, okay, which is in the north, um, and I there. And it's very, it's a, and I happened to know someone had told me that in this, in the local library in this town, there was a big collection of uh, material from one of the first camps, concentration camps, and Solovetsky camp. And I knew it was in this. It was literally the sort of local library, the town library. And I sort of went up to the librarian and introduced myself, you know, in my heavily accented Russian. So obviously I'm foreign. And I asked about this material. And this librarian looked at me. She asked me what I was doing. I explained. And she said, right. And she spent the whole day finding stuff for me. Just, you know, I'm going to bring you whatever you need. I'm going to tell you where everything is. Here's what you want. Here's our collection. And she really wanted me to see it. Um, and I had that experience over and over again of people wanting to tell their history, wanting to help me, wanting to get the news. I also had the opposite experience of people saying, why are you interested in this? You know, why don't you write about our space program? You know, why are you writing about bad things about the Soviet Union? But I also had an enormous amount of help. And there were lots of people who understood why it was important at that time, including inside the archives. I mean, inside the Moscow archives. Um, and so, so already there was a kind of mix of let us out the secrets of our past, but also a sense of slight defensiveness about there was, Russia itself. There was, there was defensiveness even then, but I would say the, you know, over and over and over again, I encountered really positive people who wanted to help and tell the truth and tell the story. Um, and, you know, that was, you know, that was my, and I spent, I didn't live in Moscow, but I traveled all over the country. I spent months working there. I had a couple friends I used to stay with. Um, and felt at that time that I knew the country pretty well. I'm, I'm, you know, I haven't now, for maybe some obvious reasons, I haven't been back in a long time. Right. Um, but I, I, I've I, always been curious about the identity of people in the Soviet Union, their identification with the Soviet identity of their nationality and the Russian element. And that was a moment when suddenly the two became separate. Um, and it's always been a question for me, because for me, psychologically, at least the way I had been brought up and possibly the way you were too, once the communists were gone, my sense was, this is, well, now we finally have Russia back. Mm. That I had this idea that an alien uh, ideology had taken over Russia and, that there was, and then we had to discover what was underneath or what could, what could emerge as, 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 as a Russian identity that would be distinct from the Soviet identity. Now, obviously, by losing so many of the republics that were that were coerced into this block, they inevitably had a stronger, singularly Russian identity. But uh, tell me how you so understood that connection. So it's a really interesting... This is actually the subject of my very, very first book, which is called Between East and West, and it was a sort of travel book, and I went all over the Western, what had been the Western Soviet Union, and a lot of it was conversations about people, you know, who are you? Who do you think you are now? And it was about the original, some of the Ukrainian and Belarusian and, and Lithuanian nationalists as they then were. Um, but the Russian Russian nationality is very complicated, precisely because for the last several hundred years, and this continued through to the Soviet Union, 
it was really, it was a sort of Russian sense of Russianness was combined with a sense of imperial power. Um, so we are the Russians, but we are also the Russians who rule over all these other places. Um, and you can see it, I mean, it's in Anna Karenina. You've, no, nobody remembers this, but Anna's husband, the sort of dreadful um, husband who she leaves for, for Vronsky, is his, he's in charge, of, he has a job in the czarist administration in charge of nationality policy. So, you know, even then there was a whole bureaucracy in charge of, you know, pacifying Central Asia. Um, and so to be Russian was to be a leader of this empire. Um, and so it's very difficult to celebrate. And this is interestingly a mistake that people make about Putin a lot, as they call him a Russian nationalist. He's not. Um, he's a Soviet imperial nostalgist, which is a little bit different. And, and the Soviet empire was Russian speaking. It was a Russian speaking empire. Um, and so he, and, and, and his idea of Russia being great, you know, what, what is, you know, what's the definition of Russia being great is Russia being once again an empire, as it has been since, you know, you know, the, you know, the last four or five centuries. Well, not four or five centuries, two or three centuries. Well, but. yeah, but let's 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 but, stick with that. When you say Ru Soviet imperialist, uh, let's. Uh, what would be the difference between that and a Russian imperialist? Because in in some ways, it seems the whole thing is bound up. No, they're very together they're, in the they're, psyche. They're they're bound up together in the psyche. Um, but Russian nationalism, I think, implies you know ethnic purity. You know, Russia for Russians, and actually, Putin doesn't have that. I mean, Russia is not, I mean, one of the mistakes people make about Russia is actually multi-ethnic. Um, it has a very high percentage of Muslims who live there. In fact, um, the number is disputed. It's at least 6%, but it may be more like 10%. Um, you know, there is a province of Russia, Chechnya, which is run by, according to the principles of Sharia law. Um, uh, uh, you know, so it's a, it is actually a multi-ethnic state with different um, territories that are run by local peoples. So it's not a ethnically pure state. So when, when you talk about Russian nationalism, that doesn't mean only Russians live there. And it's, it's not like China with Han Chinese essentially having a kind of ethnic supremacy. Maybe it's a little bit like that in that the Russians feel themselves to be somehow having ethnic supremacy over all these other people who speak various languages. So a lot of them speak Russian, but have various eth ethnic identities inside Russia. But so, it's a, but it's a, but it's a, um, it's a sense of, a, you know, we, we run this complicated state and we should really be running more. But I'm just curious because in a way, that means that my Western understanding of Russia, Soviet Union, totally separate, one will disappear, that it's much more complicated than that. Um, but let's focus now on that particular imperial mentality with respect to Ukraine. Um, uh, someone told me the other day, actually, what Ukraine, the etymological origins of Ukraine are, and it means the border. That's, it sort of has at least an element of that in the meaning of the very name. So so the best way to understand Ukraine is to think of Ukraine a little bit the way of the relationship that England used to have with Ireland. Yeah. So Ukraine is essentially a, a, a it's a it's a colony of Russia. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that because many Ukrainians were very proud to be in the Russian Empire and later in the in the so they rose. Same with Soviet plenty of people in the north of Ireland. Well, yes, you know, exactly. And 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 Northern Ireland is Donetsk. I mean, so there's a. So, so it's a little bit, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a part of our country. It's, we have a little bit of a superiority complex towards it because they're peasants. Um, you know, they have, we, you know, they have come to speak our language. 
you know, and I mean, actually, the English were more successful in eradicating Gaelic than the than the Russians were in eradicating Ukrainian. Um, and and we regard their aspirations to independence somewhat quizzically as as somewhat improbable. I mean, this is this is England in, say, you know, the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century. Um, obviously, now Ireland is its own country. And nobody thinks like that anymore. But you, you have with Russia a sort of well, similar. It's, it's 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 partitioned. <laughs> That's true. I it's mean, partitioned. It, it, truth be told, it's Donetsk is uh, right. is a separate right. entity, which right. one, one sort of suspects is part of what right. Putin would like in Ukraine or has kind of de facto he's, uh, he's, organized. His ambitions are a bit more than that. But see, so England then at a certain point, in, but England never perceived the differences. England never perceived Ireland as an ideological threat to England. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like the Irish independence movement created some problem for the legitimacy of the British political system. I see. So for Putin, when Putin looks at Ukraine, so he sees a couple of things. One is he sees, you know, renegade province that used to be part of our country and has been inexplicably led astray. Um, the other thing he sees is a country where there have been not one, or you could even two, but you could even say three, democratic revolutions, um, anti-corruption, anti-oligarchic, um, pro-democracy, pro-European. Um, you know, in 2014, Europeans waved EU flags. I mean, sorry, Ukrainians waved EU flags in in Kiev. And what he's what he what he sees when he when he looks at Ukraine and he sees what happened, you know, they threw out their oligarchic president in 2014. They ransacked his palace and took pictures of the gold taps and, you know, the ostriches in his personal zoo. Um, and they and he what he sees when he sees that is what he the thing that he's most afraid of in Russia. So what he what is Putin most afraid of? And this is a long, um, this is a long and important story. Putin was a KGB officer in Dresden in 1989. So he missed this whole period of optimism and possibility that we were talking about at the beginning. Um, he never was in Russia during Glasnost, during the years of openness and change. He was in East Germany working for the KGB. And for him, the fall of the Berlin Wall, which I, you know, remember romantically and fondly, you know, is really an amazing moment, was for him just the end of his life. It was a personal tragedy. He's he's spoken about this more than once. You know, he and his comrades were burning papers in the in the courtyard of the KGB headquarters while mobs were gathering outside, and they called to Moscow asking for reinforcements, and no help came. You know, so the empire ended in this right in front of him. And who was to fall? Who was to blame? These democracy demonstrations, these people on the street, these people talking about the West. This is what brought to an end his his career at that time, as it was and also the Soviet empire. And he's returned to this. He's, he's talked about it more than once. Um, and periodically, it has come up again. So in 2011, there were mass demonstrations in Moscow and in other cities across the country. And Putin had this extraordinary emotional reaction to them. They were, and the demonstrations, I should say, were against him taking an unconstitutional third term. So he's not supposed to be president anymore. He changed the constitution to keep himself president. And he immediately started attacking the demonstrators. These are people paid by Washington. He blamed Hillary Clinton personally. You know, this is a, you know, as if Hillary Clinton could make demonstrations happen in Moscow, but never mind. She could make them happen elsewhere, but. He, yeah, I mean, it's no, a little I'm bit. I'm just kidding. That was, <laughs> that was a stupid aside. Uh, no, 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 but, 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 but um, you know, but he immediately, but the point is whether or not he really believed that or not, what he immediately saw in those demonstrations was 
the hand of the West, you know, that, that, that Western rhetoric, that language about freedom, that language about justice. And this is a huge threat to him and the autocratic, kleptocratic, hierarchical system that he had built. And the entire history of Russia, which had really the, never... Right. I mean, when it had had these outbursts of democracy, they quickly collapsed. They've collapsed. Into, so, you know, and so... so and he, but, 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 no, no, so but, but push he, back a little bit on that, a little bit about him, because, look, he's, he's, a, he's someone who was an apparatchik in this empire that was treated as the, the other great superpower in the mm. world, even though, of course, that was essentially a lot of smoke and mirrors. So he experiences the collapse of his own mm. identity, his own nation, mm-hmm. their status in the world. Uh, and he's not the only person feeling these things. No, 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 no. So clearly a huge swath yes, of Russian absolutely. opinion feels as you would. I mean, it's not hard to understand that 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 you would feel this way. I mean, I, I grew up in a country which had lost its empire and you say, could still feel, you can feel some of that. Yeah, yeah, you can still feel it. It's not, it's part of the identity. You you were once the shit and now you're in the shitter, as it were. I mean, you, I mean, like growing up in England as a kid in the 70s, you're just aware of the grimness of everything, but surrounded with these monuments to something that had previously been quite glorious, clearly, and self-confident and, and it's hard to think of a more total psychological, ideological collapse than what happened in that time when you and I were giddy with excitement. But these people were racked with remorse and fear, yes. presumably. Yes, yes. No, no, I mean, I, I mean I'm agreeing, I agree with you completely. Yeah. That is exactly what happened to him. It's what happened to a whole generation of people like him. And often, you know, I often find myself writing about Putin when what I mean is his generation or his, his cohort, rather. Because um, many of his generation were were brave democracy activists, yes. but, but but he wasn't. Um, but but you also then have to understand what did he do after that? So he then went. He left Dresden. He made his way back to Russia. There's, it's a long story. I won't bore you with all the details. But essentially, um, he embarks on what the the second act of his cohort, which was to begin this massive theft. Right. So they start stealing big time. Um, and he begins in St. Petersburg. He's working for the St. Petersburg mayor, and he's famously in charge of an operation to steal money from the city of St. Petersburg. He takes it abroad. They launder it. They bring it back. They buy stuff. And a whole bunch of people around Putin become very rich. Um, and this is, and it wasn't just them. It was many other people and so on. Yeah. And then there's, a, then there's a long, complicated bit where they fight for power, and um, he's, you know, he, he's first named by Yeltsin, then he takes power himself. He eliminates some of the other oligarchs and he winds up on top. But he is essentially, uh, you know, you have to understand his position is a little bit like that of a leader of the mafia. I mean, he's sort of, you know, everybody has to pay fealty and homage to him. He gets cuts of everybody's money. You know, in return, he makes sure they don't kill each other and, you know, they, they stay out of jail. So there's a sort of de- so that's how the no, state it's, works. It's, it's a mafia state. It's a ma- it's a mafia state, but but at the same time, the, it's a mafia state that is simultaneously in which he is simultaneously unbelievably powerful. You know, in a, he controls the equivalent of the FBI and the CIA and Congress and the White House and this you know the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and you know Fox News and CNN you know and Exxon you know and a million other things. At the same time, he's weak because he's has a sense of himself as illegitimate, and he's afraid of these street demonstrations, even though it seems absurd. Why should he be? But he, you can, you know, if, if he wasn't afraid of them, he wouldn't have to put them all in jail. Or, or kill them. Or kill them. 
or murder them, which he also tries to do. Not just at home, but abroad. Not a, and he admire he murders people outside of the country. He murders people inside the country. And the murders have different. Sometimes it's to eliminate somebody. Sometimes it's to it's to it's to it's as a lesson. You it's, know? it's a it's but a you don't have to kill all you know you don't have to kill all the journalists, but if you kill one prominent one, you know he killed Anna Politkovskaya, was a famous journalist. You kill no, you kill one of them, then everybody else is scared. So that's the system. And so he he he's the he's at the top of this pyramid. It's it has a lot of fragility. Um, it's profoundly corrupt, and everybody knows it's corrupt. I mean, right. you know. So the he you have to understand that in Russia, the the big companies are owned and both owned and regulated by the same people. So the people who work for Putin in the Kremlin are also on the sometimes literally on the boards of Gazprom and these other companies. So they're right. earning money from the companies that they are. You know. So there's no there's no difference between the big Russian companies and the state. They're the same thing. Yeah. No, we can see this happening. And you, and, and we're talking about the 90s now. And the Western has an opportunity. It has to decide what to do. Remember, going back to Thatcher, she, she was actually uh, reluctant to reunify Germany for all sorts of weird reasons. That was during her slightly bonkers mm. late stage before she was dispatched. But there were other people watching many people who saw the situation and understood or believed that Russia's psyche was also kind of involved here, the way you've described Putin. And, and let me, I just want to read you this paragraph, or two paragraphs from George Kennan at the time, mm. uh, someone who you know, one should respect to some extent. And here he is. Something is of the highest importance at stake here. And perhaps it's not too late to advance a view that I believe is not only mine alone, but is shared by a number of others with extensive and in most instances more recent experience in Russian matters. The view bluntly stated is that expanding NATO would be the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion, that have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy, to restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East-West relations, and to impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. And last but not least, it might make it much more difficult, if not impossible, to secure the Russian Duma's ratification of the START II agreement and to achieve further reductions of nuclear weaponry. I, 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 that, I think that's 97. Mm. Um, so you have a lot of people saying... Don't push it. Russia, because of the reasons you've outlined, its sense of its own identity as controlling, to some extent, this empire, this broader empire. And people were saying, if we put NATO all the way up to Poland, if we put it, if we, well, there were several stages in which it was done, but if we, if we, they are going to feel that this is encircling Russia. Uh, and that was true with Poland, Czech Republic, or Czechoslovakia, as, that, as then it was. Uh, but how much more so Ukraine? And so, so we and, need and to we, go back a little because okay. because Ukraine is not in NATO. So you know, I know, right. but it's but it's but so, it's, so, and, it's it's specific. When was but, the but, moment? And, and you also have to think about and you know you have to go back to why Ukraine was not interested in being in NATO ten years ago. Why is Ukraine interested in being in Ukraine in NATO now? And why did the states of Eastern Europe? want to join NATO in the 90s? And the answer is that the thing you're describing, by the time George Kennan wrote that, if it's from 1997, had already happened. Um, and so the, the, 
you know, Russia's instinct to meddle in and control and interfere in states that it had once occupied was visible already by then and was already very active. Um, and so what happened was that the nations of first of Central Europe, who thought of themselves as Europeans, you know, and con considered themselves connected to, to Europe, and that includes the Central Europeans and the Baltic states, um, you know, began trying to join. The first Polish efforts to join NATO are in the early 90s, and then they come to fruition eventually um, in around 97. And why do they want to join NATO? Because NATO is a zone of prosperity and safety and security, and because they're afraid of Russia. And because, well, the, NATO, because the revanchism that you've described had already begun. NATO is... And, so, and, you know, so, and then, you know, let me just NATO finish. NATO is a defense pact. It's not, NATO, it's not the EU. It's not a zone of democracy. That's what you think. I mean, you, I, I mean yes, of course you're right, technically. The <laughs> EU, the, the EU is, is much more important. I mean, actually, I think the EU is much more important in spreading democracy in the region than any other institution, including American influence. I mean, I think the EU is directly responsible for, um, for solidifying democracy for 30 years. Um, but NATO was also extremely important, both from the point of view of those countries and also from the point of view of investors and so on, that this was a signal that this was safe. You know, this is this is a region of the world in which it's, what, 60, you know, I have, I have you know, 90 million people or something. Um, this is a region of the world that was the origin of two world wars that's been the source of infinite instability that has been fought over between Russia and Germany, basically, for, you know, for 200 years. And really, the United, the American decision to expand NATO into the region um, brought three decades of peace and prosperity, um, doubling and quadrupling of national GDPs, um, an absence of war, as I said, in a region that had always been the sources of war. Um, really, if you step back from it, it's the most successful piece of American foreign policy in the last half century. I mean, what else is there? You know, our policy in the Middle East? You know, you know where else? Well, where the, else have we been so successful? Well, let's see where, where else have let's we achieved see, something? Maybe it's a little too soon to tell. Well, well maybe it, this but, was but, as. But let's as, look. Let me but just, let's look at the. You know, let's look at what it achieved. You know, why, first of all, why did it happen? It didn't happen because Americans wanted it. It happened because the Poles wanted it and the Romanians wanted it, um, and they applied for it and they pushed for it and they lobbied for it. And why did they want it? Because they were afraid of Russia and they were afraid of the of of Soviet imperial nostalgia, which was visible even then. Um, so the so the expansion of NATO was not the cause of this problem; um, it's the result. Is, um, is, so, I mean, the, the, but hold on a minute, because you could say. It's obviously complicated because the Russian ambitions and the sense of itself as extending, having some sphere of influence, is not new, and it goes back a long way. Right. If, I mean, just like German extent, you know, desire to right. expand itself was also not new, but eventually, so not, eventually, it was halted. But to but to actually take the historic enemy of the Soviet Union, NATO, and to move it to the borders of Russia. We didn't move it to the borders of Russia. Well, what is Poland if not the border of Russia? Forgive well, me. There, well, there is a tiny, you know, because of the well, Kaliningrad district, but I mean, there's two large countries in between Poland and Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. But there, it's pretty close. I mean, I'm just saying from their point of view, uh, yeah, but the, they have lost a war and the West has decided to respond to this by moving its influence and military, military defensiveness right up further into Eastern Europe. This, from the point of Look, view of the Russians 
is clearly a form of aggression. Okay, if, for example, all, I mean, first of all, they, the no, they didn't say it at the time, but um, they've they've decided later on that it was a threat. They didn't feel it to be a threat at the time. But well, how do you but know also, that? Because I remember. You know, there, there weren't huge Russian objections to the expansion of NATO in the in the 90s. This is all post hoc reinvention of history. Um, so, the so the, and, Kenan, and, and also, Kenan, when also, Kenan, when also Kenan, Andrew, you're also on. looking at it. You're also when looking. Kenan was saying this, who what was he referring to? He seems to be referring to a long Russian tradition of paranoia about their okay, but, borders. But, okay, well, about so it, two separate. So do we do we allow Russia its paranoia, and we say, okay, because you're paranoid, we're going to allow Poland to become um, a battleground again? Not necessarily a battleground, but maybe a. I mean, a, Ukraine is a battleground. Maybe a neutral space. Maybe a space that isn't. We don't have to go right up there. We have. We can. How, we can, how does Russia treat neutral spaces? Well, look at the neutral spaces around Russia. Um, one of them is Ukraine. Well, there's been a war there for the last eight years. Another one is Belarus. Well, there there's almost total Russian domination of the whole political system. Russia doesn't do neutral. You know, Russia, it's either, um, you, know, I, you know, either either they have, you know, either they actually control the internal politics of the country or else they see them as enemies. But can you see why they would see the same thing about us? We don't do neutral. We have to go into Poland and and but Why and do you think our... we went into Poland? Why do you think NATO, Poland is in because NATO? NATO? Because we went there? No, NATO didn't. I mean, Poland, NATO agreed to incorporate. How many? Poland you, begged NATO to be. Right. Into, you know, so because there was of a course Polish, they would. There's they a, want to get the entire know, but, West but, yeah, on but, the hook for their no, defense against no, so Russia. Andrew, so, yeah, but you, you keep talking about this is the West versus Russia. Well, I that's mean, how they see it. Does Poland, yeah, but does Poland have no agency? Does Does Lithuania have no agency? Does... Czech, you know, the Czech Republic has no agency. Romania has no agency. Again, you know, by expanding— Does Mexico have real agency? Do, do, do places that abut so, major powers? If, if, for example, the, Mexico, the Republic of Ireland in the Cold War decided to align with the Soviet Union, do you think the British would have felt in some way encircled or, or attacked or threatened? What yeah. if, the, if the Irish had, I mean, uh, had decided to— uh, actually go into alliance with the Nazis, which was also a possibility. Which was a possibility. Uh, would, you you think think, would you think it would have been irrational for the British to feel threatened? Yeah, but, but Andrew, NATO is not the Nazis. Well, I'm just... I'm, but No, no, but those aren't... Ac- you, you have to be careful with your analogies because NATO is... Because we're talking uh, NATO about- is a defensive alliance that defends democracies. And, um, you know, and, and the Nazis were, you know, an aggressive... You know, a, a power that sought to invade, invade and occupy Britain. It doesn't. You know, the, so so there's an enormous. So you can't. It's not an accurate analogy. Well, I'm just trying to explain the sense that we would have, that countries might have, who've always had influence in their arena, in their areas, to have a neighbor, very close neighbors that they've always dominated, Andrew, suddenly if, become parties to Russia, your historic enemy. If Russia had wanted to be a member of NATO, Russia would now be a member of NATO. NATO would be meaningless. NATO, the idea, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. If Russia were a democracy, was, Russia would be a member of NATO. And who would we be defending? Who would we defending we it from? We would be a security and defense alliance oh, that, defending. Bef- the, we, what are you talking who? about? I mean, the only wars NATO have fought, have fought were in Afghanistan. I mean, you know, which had nothing to do with Russia. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a sense and usefulness um, of a of a Western democratic security alliance that is not doesn't have to be anti-Russian. But the only hap- anyway, me- the only reason it's anti-Russian, I mean, the only reason it thinks about Russia is because everybody's afraid of Russian aggression. You know, and you know what? You know, 
Poland joined NATO, and for years and years and years, there were no American troops in Poland. There was no base. There was nothing. The only reason the first president who brought American troops to Poland was Obama, uh, believe it or not. And Obama did it because of the invasion of Ukraine in 2014. So that's the, um, you know, it's the Russia is producing, you know, is producing this need to defend the West and the need to defend Europe, which, believe me, Europe was more than ready, I mean, you know, to to disarm, to forget about it, to move on. Uh, there was one moment when all American tanks had been taken out of Europe. There was not a single one left. Um, you know, the, we talked about the peace dividend all through the 90s. You know, the desire was to, it was to kind of dismantle NATO. And if it was not for Russian aggression, NATO would be gone. I genuinely believe that. You know, NATO is exists. Is NATO already NATO gone? Exists let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me give me a chance to answer these questions, ask these questions. NATO is a defensive pact. It, it, it relies upon an attack on one is an attack on all. Now, up to a point. You know, it's but, not automatic. Yeah. Well, no, but that's what it's basically designed to do. Because yes. it was constructed to defend against a, uh, an aggressive, internationally aggressive communist regime. Yeah, right? that, the first time it that was, was It didn't was exist before that. Yeah. It didn't yeah. exist before that, before the Soviet Union came into existence, forcing this alliance. If you were to ask me today, does the, do the American people say, or let's say the people of Britain even, who are members of NATO really, really do believe that if Russia were to attack, like say one of the Baltic states, that the entire West would go to war and risk nuclear war over that? I mean, at what point did NATO lose credibility because it extended far too far than it, than it can actually do? Isn't Russia just calling our bluff? We have no intention. Would Britain, of, would Britain go to war if France were attacked? Yes. You sure? Pretty much. If Germany were attacked? Pretty much, I think. Uh, but I, the things, again, if we look at the world not entirely through this ideological, either your democracy or your uh, invalid mode and just accept that these powers exist, then dealing with a power like Russia requires a certain amount of finesse, it seems to me, a certain amount of understanding its psyche. And the kind of understanding that Kennan and countless foreign policy experts said at the end of the Cold War. You push this, you, you, you do a victory lap, you thrill to the possibility of, of Russia imploding, then you are going to stir up a deep psychological response from Russia that is going to lead to another conflict, another kind of Cold War, which it, when I read Kennan, I think, man, that guy was prescient. Yeah, be careful because Kennan was wrong about a lot of things, and it's not worth wasting time on the podcast. But I'm just saying he that. wasn't the only one. No, there's a but huge he, chorus of people no, saying, "Don't Kenan, do this, don't do this, don't do Kenan, this," and yet we did it, and we are now okay, dealing with the Kenan long-term consequences. Kennan was not the only foreign policy expert. Also, Kennan is somebody who saw the world through Russian eyes. He was obsessed with Russia. Russia was his life's project. That's what he thought about. Well, maybe he, he understood he it. He didn't better. see the world through Polish eyes. He didn't see the world through German eyes. He didn't see the. He didn't. You know, there are other considerations here other than Russia. So, first of all, the, the the also the other question: What is the correct? Okay, so if we accept, which I don't actually, that Russia is inevitably always going to be expansive and always going to be aggressive and so on. Um, and I don't accept that. I don't believe that any nation is inevitably anything. You know, I don't believe America is inevitably a democracy, and I don't believe Russia is inevitably do, autocracy. Do you think that America's but, claim to real uh, ownership, as it were, of the entire Western Hemisphere 
I don't, uh, is, I, no, I, is itself the way that no, the United no, I, States I, I, has I, I, I consistently into interfered, uh, gone into states in South America and Latin America, replaced regimes. Yeah, pretty disastrous played, effect. Yes, but nonetheless, do you think most it's, people it do not that regard that as something outrageous. They understand that the United States might want to have some autonomy and control in its own regional outlet. And at the minute someone comes close to the United States, if, if there were a hostile power took over in Mexico, as we saw okay. in Cuba, we nearly blew the whole world up because of the possibility that there would be an enemy close to us, that the, the Soviets might actually be nearer to us. We nearly blew up the whole world to defend ourselves, and we're not paranoid the way I the mean, Russians are. Yeah, but, okay, for, so, you know, you've, you've now, I, you know, I was going in a different direction because I wanted to ask you what is okay. the correct way to deal with Russia, but, you know, now that we're on, we're on this, I mean, um, right now the U.S. has nuclear weapons that circle the air in, in airplanes and are on submarines and can be launched at Russia from anywhere at any time. So, so the existence of, you know, whatever it is, 300 um, American soldiers in Poland is not a threat to Russia. And imagining that it is, is ludicrous. And I don't believe the Russians think that either. I don't believe that anything that they're doing right now, any of their paranoia about Ukraine has anything to do with NATO. It is, NATO is something they say, it's part of Putin's, maybe Putin himself is paranoid because he has this idea about his place in history and so on. The threat from Ukraine is not about NATO. The threat from Ukraine is that Ukraine represents a country that has successfully escaped um, a, you know, a, a Russian-style autocratic system that has a democracy that seeks to be close to the West. If Ukraine succeeds, if Ukraine becomes a prosperous, integrated European country, whatever that means, I mean, even if it's the poorest place in Europe. It's not, it's, it's a it's huge, not really in Europe. It's a, just a second. It's, it's a huge, Let me finish. It's a huge... It's a huge threat to Russia, to Putin, sorry, not to Russia, because if Ukraine can succeed and Ukraine can become something vaguely like a Western style democracy, even if it's not part of Europe, OK, then why can't Russia? And the Russian opposition will see that and they will um, and they will. Um, be inspired by it, and that is what Putin is afraid of. So, yes, in that sense, he is he is afraid of Ukraine becoming normal. Because if Ukraine is normal, then he then then his autocratic, kleptocratic, um, you know, um, uh, you know, mafia state might be threatened ideologically. There so, yes, was no real threat to the United States from leftist regimes that arrived and emerged in South America over the last thirty years or so. Um, the United States intervened. And uh, blew it. Well, and sure, but nonetheless, what totally I'm saying disastrous, is... Totally one we, after the next. Sure, but we certainly didn't say we didn't have the right to do it. We certainly didn't act kidding? as if we Lots were... Lots of people said we didn't have the but right But the United do States did. There was no... Mas no you think there was no objection to American intervention in Nicaragua or Cuba? Of course there was. But there was I mean, also, one of the, one of but the effects the point of our... Is, let me just finish this point. The point was exactly what you're saying about Putin... The notion was if a different model works in Venezuela, if a different model from their point, I'm talking now from their point of view, I'm actually trying to think of things from the other side and see where they're coming from. Uh, 
if a model like that works in Cuba, if it, if it works like that in Venezuela, if it works like that in Nicaragua, we have to go in and prevent it. We, have, we will go in and have orchestrate coups, we will replace governments, we will send arms, we will make sure no one in that region represent, even symbolically, and should we keep a doing threat. that? No, what I'm just saying is that... And so that the Russians should do that? I am saying that, it is, that it, this is part of great power psyches, that when you deal with great powers with this kind of historic influence around their neighborhood, in fact, the United States actually has a doctrine saying don't come anywhere right. near and us. So, so we, we, you're trying to make this... You're trying to say that Russia is some kind of weird, uniquely no, poisonous sort I of... I didn't say uh, Russia was weird. But I'm just saying, I don't think seeing a, a, an, what you've long understood to be a military enemy actually reaching up to your borders and promising even they further incursions... They don't think NATO's a military enemy. They know exactly how many tanks we have. They know exactly how many soldiers we have. They are not afraid of NATO. I just don't believe it. But, but, but you're, psychologically, you're, you're, no, do you Andrew, think we you, were you're, afraid you're of Venezuela? The reasoning around, I don't buy this analogy, actually, where that's a whole other thing. But, but no, we're not afraid of Venezuela, and Russia's not afraid of Ukraine, and Russia's not afraid of England, and Russia's not afraid of France. They might be afraid of American nuclear missiles, but as I said, those, aren't, those don't have to be in Europe in order to hit Russia. That's not what they're afraid of. They're afraid of... Um, of Western democracy as in the form that it could unseat Putin. That's what he's afraid of. Do you think there's anything? And he in will fight it. And, and 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 let me, you know, yeah. and he will fight it anywhere. He'll 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 fund extremist parties in France. He'll fund them in Germany. Um, he'll fund separatists in Spain. He'll fund, you know, that's you know, all of that is part of the same. Um, it's part of the same project. Um, and in Ukraine, it particularly bothers him because Ukraine is a former. Um, Russian colony. Has Ukraine ever really been independent as a single state? It's been independent for the last 30 years, yeah. Uh, well, out of all of history? Yeah, no. I mean, it's a colony. You know, okay. It's a so colony. I, just want, I mean, Ireland, been... Ireland became independent in, you know, in, the, in the first half of the 20th century, you know, and before that, it hadn't been independent in modern times. And Ukraine, like Ireland, like Slovakia, was a colony. So no, it hadn't been. Uh, you're right; it had not been an independent state, and that's why um, the 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 you know the formation of Ukrainian finally there had been. So, I should say there are several attempts to create a Ukrainian state. There was well, one in well, let's, let's one use the after, after the Russian just Revolution. For a second, which is that, of course, as in Ukraine, a large number of people in one part of the country actually think of themselves as British, just as the way lots of people in Eastern Ukraine are have an identity that is bound up with Russia. They speak Russian. Um, they support Putin. Um, there are going to be people in eastern Ukraine on his side. Now, in Ireland, this endless struggle was resolved or kind of resolved by a border. Uh, in other words, they ceded a large part of this former imperial uh, regime to the imperial master as a way to find some sort of livable solution. Uh, so... That does not seem to me to be the ruthless application of democratic principles that you would understand it to be. In other words, we take into account a question of national interest, national psyche. And here, let me ask you this broader so, question. Can I just, before we you go on, there's national one, humiliation there's one is, a, is an issue in international affairs? You feel. Okay, wait, there's a, just put, I have to correct okay. one thing. Okay. Um, 
Ukraine is a bilingual nation like Belgium or Canada. Um, Ukrainians, almost all Ukrainians speak both Russian and Ukrainian fluently. And I've been to public meetings in Kiev where people switch back and forth because everybody understands everybody else. Everybody speaks in whichever language they find easiest. Um, speaking Russian does not mean that you're pro-Putin. And nor, are, nor does it mean that you identify ethnically as Russian, just like English-speaking Irish people don't identify as English. Right. So, so be careful with you know what Ukrainian Russian-speaking Ukrainians. But there are want. many That's more Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the East than in the West. There is a distinction between East and West Ukraine. That there, at least in there is, but it's more complicated than you think. I mean, so sure, there, there, there are, there are you know very pro-Ukrainian, um, sort of pro-Ukrainian in the national sense cities in eastern Ukraine. Let's and talk a little bit about what Putin often talks about, national humiliation as a concept. Um, the West wins a war. It imposes sort of some really tough conditions on the defeated country. We didn't impose any tough uh, no, conditions. No, no, no. I'm, I'm using an analogy here. I'm just... Right. Well, for them, admit the enemy being ushered into... The, the states that they have historically influenced is a sense of national meaning. I'm just they don't care about that. I promise you. Well, how do I mean? I'm sorry. That's what they say. That's what it's, it makes psychological sense to me. They didn't object uh, at the time. Well, I'm, I, I, lots of people in the United States were objecting on their behalf at the time. Are you are you really telling me no Russians were concerned about when we decided to expand NATO despite this huge debate happening in the West in the 90s about how wise and prudent this was to really push I think the envelope? You, you know, Andrew, you have bought the Russian narrative. So the, this is this is the Russian narrative I'm now. To understand this is Putin's where narrative. From. I'm I'm tell, I'm also trying to understand where they're coming from. So you know. You know, the Russian narrative now is to go back and explain, um, you know, the, 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 the progress of the last 30 years in exactly this way and to focus on the issue of NATO as if it were the thing that really mattered. Um, you know, NATO was no one was talking about NATO in 2014 when they invaded Ukraine. You know, um, they they they've 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 recreated this. They've brought it back as an issue in order to justify what they're doing, which is to try and reoccupy Ukraine and to undermine Ukraine and to and to and to essentially run Ukraine. But it's it's but but it is not because of NATO, and you're you're focusing on the wrong issue. I mean, um, you're you're focusing on the you know the, the the story that they're trying to tell about what they're doing, which doesn't reflect what's actually happened in the last couple of decades. Well, I'm listening to their story, but I'm also listening. I'm also reading the history. Um, I lived through it as you did. I can. I don't think it's. I mean, how much have you read about the history of Ukraine? Not, well, I don't mean to be obnoxious, but you, know, you, know. you can be obnoxious if you want. I'm <laughs> doing my best to understand it. Um, it doesn't seem crazy to me that the Russians would okay, okay, feel right, the way they do. Okay, all right. Oh, sorry, feelings even if, matter. Even I mean, if we concede they feel that. All right. A sense okay, of so national humiliation Germans, is very powerful. The Germans felt humiliated after the First World War. Okay. Let's, we, I don't like German analogies because they're always wrong. You know, they're always extreme. But does that then justify the German invasion of Poland, the German invasion of France, you know, the German, you know, mass murders all across Europe. So, so the question. Okay, so even if the Russians feel humiliated by NATO, which I don't believe that they do, because I think they can count missiles just like anybody else, and they know that NATO no, has very few. Humiliation is humiliation. Okay, but, is not okay, about but even if missiles. they even if they feel that, 
what is our what is the correct response that we should make? Should we say, "Oh, you feel humiliated, therefore you're allowed to invade all these countries"? No. Is that the response? No. Well, Obviously so what is not. our what should our response be? Uh, well, again, we have to go back to what we should we should we, done should we... Done. I think of China, for example, too. Part of the potency behind China's current aggression and resurgence is nationalism. Mm. Part of its understanding of its national identity comes from a story it tells itself mm. about how the rest of the world came in and tried to dismember them and they're finally right. coming back. This is not new in human history. That, that, no. that, that regimes have memories, they nurture grudges, okay, they but, have deep feelings of national okay, pride. Okay, but how do we and, react? Well, we sh- well, first of all, I, the, the, there's the immediate question now, how do we react? And it seems to me that we're, we're caught because we, we can't at this point, it seems to me, concede under the pressure of this military threat because that in itself then... Uh, rewards military threats and and Mm. clearly encourages further military threats. On the other hand, I don't think that we should have offered potential membership in NATO. We haven't. We've blocked membership in NATO to Ukraine. So why is there ambiguity? Why can't we remove the ambiguity and say, no, we have no intention of Ukraine ever being part of NATO. We understand it's about as far away from the North Atlantic as you can get. There's no way that the people of Western Europe or the United States are going to put their own sons and daughters at risk to fight over a place that was run by Russia for centuries. Uh, so instead of this hubristic notion that we're okay. going to celebrate okay, the humiliation did, of Russian tyranny... Okay, say we tyranny, do say that, then what happens? How will that make a difference? Well, it would. I think it would... You think that would end the conflict? And Russia would say, okay, Ukraine's not going to be in NATO, that's fine. They I don't can, think, they can I don't go think ahead they and be invade. a democracy. I don't think they would invade. I think we and could find say, a way and they would to, say, to insist upon neutrality for Ukraine, for example. Ukraine has been neutral for 30 years. But, 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 but the notion that it might no longer be, that it want, they why, want not to be neutral. Why does Ukraine want to join NATO, Andrew? It didn't want to join NATO 10 years ago. There was no prospect of Ukraine joining NATO. No one talked about Ukraine joining NATO. You know, so why, sorry, I should say more than 10 years, 15 years ago. Why does, why did Ukraine suddenly get scared and feel that it wanted to be in NATO? Well, partly because we had already guaranteed its security. Uh, no, when, we haven't guaranteed Now, hold security. on a second. When, well, you tell me about this. When we asked them to give up their nukes, there was a, an agreement that we would pr- protect the integrity of the Ukrainian state. This is what, 90, 94. 94. That wasn't right? a that wasn't a treaty. That was just a. Memorandum. I know, but still, and that that's a signed, big deal. But who you, signed that treaty? If Ukraine still had nukes, this would not be a question, would right. it? Right. And who signed that treaty? America, UK, and Russia. And does Russia care about that treaty? No. You know. So when Russia writes history of the of the nineties, Russia doesn't mention that treaty because it's not interested in remembering remembering that. Um, so the so, Ukrainians should though. Um, yeah, they, they remember. They, no, but, but you didn't answer my question. So why do you think Ukraine, having been a neutral state, having actually been an ally of Russia and sort of vaguely pro-Russian, as it's always been, most Ukrainians feel positively towards Russia or used to do, what changed? You know, the answer is, first of all, the invasion of Georgia, which scared them. Uh, and second of all, the invasion of Ukraine, which, and by the way, Russia has been fighting a low-level war with Ukraine for eight years. All of which was, I mean, so, well, all, all of which was predicted by people who said, don't push Russia. Don't 
push but it why, into a corner. Why did why did no one pushed Russia to invade Ukraine? Ukraine's not in NATO. Russia invaded Ukraine. It has nothing to do with Ukraine. Russia invades Ukraine. Russia meddles in Georgia um, because Russia can't stand the idea that there could be democracies on its border and that those countries could have genuine independence. So, so the so those countries are afraid of Russia. So, what changed in their mentality? What made them want to be part of NATO? They're afraid of Russia. Why is Russia making them afraid? Because Russia is attacking them and, and seeking to undermine them and carrying out cyber war and information war and because so on. Russia if is, Russia would stop doing that, right. then no one would even be talking about NATO. Right. And we could say, fine, Ukraine can be neutral from now until the end of time. Except there has never been a moment when Russia has not tried to right. influence okay. so what, and, control, I mean, so, and control what's been happening in Ukraine. That's, they regard it as sort of part of their, their natural motherland, right? And so, and and by the same token, we should treat Canada as part of our national land. We should intervene in Canadian politics. We should make sure that someone is elected to be prime minister of Canada, you know, according to our wishes. And when they're not, we should intervene and 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 shoot the and shoot the prime minister. I mean, you know, is that is that no? But I think that I think you're you're that's a an ahistorical and abstract uh, analogy. If you if if. If or okay, look at UK and Britain. I think it's should, not, the, should the do you think the UK would have a would be in it well within its rights to intervene in Irish elections and fund Irish political parties and well, let's say and invade? The, you know, the Irish state had announced an an alliance with the Nazis. Right. Uh, I think Britain the would Nazi, have well, probably invade. Again, we've we've already done this analogy. I know, but I'm work. just saying yeah. it's not it's not. There is a point at NATO which NATO is not the Nazis. Most, I think this, the, the, the experience, when I think of America and I think of how prickly America is, incredibly prickly, about any foreign intervention in the entire hemisphere it belongs in, then I don't find it completely impossible to understand why Russians okay. would feel the way about places right, that okay, they had historically okay, let's, let's occupied forever. From, let's move on from understanding okay. Russia and let's move on to what is the correct reaction to that kind of aggressive imperialism. Well, here's what... You know, is the correct reaction to appease them and say, okay, you can take little bits of each country until you get back to the German border, which is where you'd like to be, um, you know, or is the correct reaction to push back at them and to say, no, there are limits, you can't invade sovereign states? Well, the, the United States should ask itself, I think, in those contexts, what is in our national interest? Well, what is that's a good question. So, so what is no, our national interest? Well, let's. There are many different. Obviously, right. that's a huge debate. But let's say you think right now that, for example, Russia is not really a threat to the United States or the West. I mean, it, it has. Yeah, I'm afraid I do think Russia is a threat. Even leaving aside Ukraine, Russia is a threat. But yes, I, I, I agree that it's it's military and it's nuclear power and it's and it's control of natural resources. No, it's a bit more than that. It also I, it's also the most sophisticated fighter of information war in the world. Right. It funds um, extremist parties all over the West. Um, but and you not could argue, and I think quite persuasively, that China is our main 
Right. You don't get to choose which country is trying to, you know, China is maybe well, our we, main and most important rival, but China, China up until is, now is not trying to undermine American democracy. It's not trying to break up the European Union. It's not trying to affect, um, you know, p politics in Germany and France. So right now, unfortunately, the smaller and more annoying and less significant power is the one that actually wants to undermine us. So maybe in the future that will be China. Right now it's Russia. Right. Well, I think that lots of people would disagree with you and say, in fact, that China is the core problem. And it's crazy to alienate no, both Russia and China simultaneously. We don't, so that ha we we don't get that choice. We always have a choice. No, we don't get that choice. Because, first of all, the way autocracies work now um, is that they collaborate and cooperate with one another. Um, they uh, So whether it's, you know, sanctions on one can be they will help out with sanctions on the other. Um, they share tactics, they share surveillance systems, they share, um, you know, they share methods of monitoring dissidents. Um, they work together in all kinds of ways that they didn't used to do. And it's absolutely independent of ideology. So communist China, nationalist Russia, you know, theocratic Iran, um, Bolivarian, whatever it is, Venezuela, you know, these are all countries that work in close collaboration with one another. They're the state companies in one do corrupt deals with the state companies in another. Um, they, you know, they're, they're, they, they work together all the time. We, you know, our deciding that we want to be friends with Russia would not erase Russia's relationship with China. It would, you know, it's a, it's a, it's not a choice that we get. Um, I'm not, I'm, I, I, I don't even know quite how to respond to that. I think, I think that you can make decisions about which is your, your greatest enemy and which is, which, and how you can cooperate. Well, I mean, we, we allied with bloody Stalin, yeah, Russia, for Christ's sake. Russia sees us as a, a... But I think China is the key threat. Its, it's, 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 its potential as a global power is really quite extraordinary. It is threatening directly a whole bunch of allies, including India, which has had military conflict with. It's threatening to invade Taiwan. It, is, it has an economy that is infinitely more potent than Russia's. Uh, and we need to contain it in ways that, in fact, it's not. It's doing a pretty good job of containing itself by alienating ev absolutely right. every neighbor around it. But nonetheless, you could make that argument. But anyway, I think the I think one of the all your I take all your points, and I, I and you've expressed them extremely well. I think that one maybe aspect beneath this is that you do see the world in these ideological terms of democracy, autocracy. No, I don't see and the you world. Want, and, oh, no. but, 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 and, and some, some of us see that, but also, and that's a very 90s thing to do. It's, it's a, it, no, whereas no, if, you uh, see, if you see the world as a bunch of great powers, some of which are run by autocrats, some of which are run by democracies, each advancing their own interests against one another, then you come to a slightly different view of how we should interact, right? I mean, I, I'm so just trying is, to get so this is a, this is this. So I, I believe that in this case, I am the realist. Okay, yeah. so I, I see the world, you know, um, it's not that I see the world in ideological terms. It's not even that I think, you know, all democracies are marvelous. You know, believe me, I'm very critical of many democracies, including ours. Um, um, but I do think that this is the way Putin sees the world. And he says it. Putin sees the world as he sees that the democratic ideas are threatening to him personally and to his form of power. And that means he's against them wherever they appear. So he's against them in the United States. He's against them in Ukraine. He's against them in, um, you know, in, in, in wherever, in France or, um, you know, or Taiwan. 
Um, so, you know, he's he, and the thing that distresses him the most, and he says this too, um, unfortunately, I don't have quotes in front of me, but, you know, when he sees a dictator fall because of a democratic revolution, this makes him nervous. So look at the world from his point of view. What is he personally afraid of? The world is not a game of risk in which there are, you know, abstract power X and abstract power Y, and they have these eternally clashing interests. The world is people, and they're, and we're talking about people who want to remain in power in these very powerful and yet fragile autocracies. And so Putin, when he, when he looks around him, where does he see threats? He does not see threats from a bunch of American, you know, soldiers in, you know, in, in, in Wroclaw. He sees threat from, you know, street demonstrations in Ukraine that brought a democratic president to power, that ransacked his palace, and that could do the same to him. He sees the power of that example. That's what he's the thing he's afraid of. That's mm -hmm. what he's fighting against. Mm -mm. And so what is realistic, you know, what is to see the world like that and not in some kind of imaginary geopolitical struggle that's abstract and takes place between one big piece on the risk board and another big piece on the okay. risk board. Um, and so, so the realistic way is to understand who he is, what does he want, what's he afraid of, and how do we mm -hmm. restrain him? Um, and so that, let's, and, let's just move them okay. briefly to what we do now, because we could talk about this forever, and you make a very strong case for your position. However, here we are. We are not going to send troops to Ukraine. No. Neither is any other country nope, in NATO. we aren't. Uh, what do you think? I mean, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen. There are people who say, for example, that this is a major just bluff, that, in fact, he doesn't have the military power to really occupy all of Ukraine, that that would be an absolute disaster for him, that essentially this is a almost cost-free attempt to just push, 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 push for Russian influence. Um, but at the same time, it's getting to the point where he can't back down now, really, absent some sort of concession, it seems to me. Oh, I think he can always back down. I mean, so, so given, what do you think given, is so really going to happen? So given, given that Putin has a permanent interest mm -hmm. in undermining Ukraine, okay, mm -hmm. and that this has been actually the invasion of Ukraine, I think, is something he's wanted to do for a long time. In fact, we know that because in 2014, they invaded Crimea. That was a great success because nobody fought back and everybody was surprised. Then they invaded eastern Ukraine and they fought and when and there was a pushback and they, he tried to have a little coup d'etat in Kharkiv and northeast Ukraine and that failed because they pushed back and with a very bit of pushback they gave up and they just have this war running in um, in Donetsk. Um, but he's been thinking about invading Ukraine. I mean, even at that time, I just reread something I wrote at the time and I was reminded about how much they published a map of Ukraine. Here's what it could look like and they were talking about partition and so on. He's been thinking about this for a long time. You know what stops it? You know, well, what stops him is the question of how high the price would be. So I don't believe that's a promise that we, we say, okay, Ukraine will never be in NATO. Will that stop him? No, that's unrealistic. I know the realists believe that, but it's unrealistic because really the threat from Ukraine is more profound than that. It's not about Ukraine being in NATO, it's about Ukraine being a sovereign democracy. Okay, so how does he, so, so what could, um, so given that he's gonna always wanna do this, how do we stop? Well, we have to raise the price. So the cost of invading Ukraine has to be too high. He thought, I believe the timing now is connected both to COVID, um, to the divisions inside the US, um, which he helped create in, in a small way, um, and to um, this you know, belief that Europe was more divided than I think he understands. I mean, it's actually not as divided as he thinks, but that belief 
Um, and also, too, I think the fear that the Ukrainian military was getting better and Ukraine was consolidating, it was becoming more successful. So this is a, you know, he's got to do it now or else it'll be too late because he wants to do it sooner or later. What stops him raising the price? Well, how do we raise the price? Well, there are several ways. Um, one is we can send weapons. And obviously, we're not going to, you know, Ukraine doesn't have nukes and it doesn't have sophisticated um, anti-aircraft systems, but we can send them javelins. We can send them stuff that they can use to pick off Russian tanks, which actually a lot has arrived in the last two or three weeks. Um, and this is, you know, I mean, when you think how wars are fought nowadays, I mean, you can imagine um, lots of scenes of Russian tanks burning on CNN might be bad for morale at home. So this is not a small, this is not a small thing. Uh, number one. Number two, we can do sanctions. But we can't do the kinds of sanctions we did before where we name a few people and then what happens is they get fake passports or they put their companies in their wives' names and they keep on doing business in Europe. No, we have to do real sanctions. Um, and I don't know what exactly the White House is saying to the Kremlin. Um, they keep saying, yes, we're going to do real sanctions. We're telling them real things. I don't know whether that's true. I don't have any, any special knowledge. But I mean, those real sanctions would be, you know, no more Russian gas exports to Europe. Germany will get its gas from somewhere else. Um, so that would cut off most of his money supply. Um, you know, real financial sanctions. So those Russian companies, you know, Russian oligarchs are chucked out of London and their children are sent home from school. You know, I mean, um, so, so real sanctions that affect real people and that have a real cost and price. That, would, that, might, that might impress them. You know, remember, he's, he still depends to a certain degree on the acceptance of, you know, there is an elite in Russia. It's very small. Um, he's, of course, they're, of course, all afraid of him, but they're also kind of all afraid of each other. And there is a elite that he, you know, might be, I think already is probably very upset by this because this is not good for business. Um, but he still has to worry about, about them. So that would be, that would be a, um, a second thing. So, so but, the, but, the, but, the, but the point is, we have to make sure that he, that the price is high enough that he won't do it. And that's, and, that, and another word for that is deterrence. He has to be deterred. I am not calling for an invasion of anything. You know, I want there to be no war, you know. And because I think there should be no war, I want us to arm Ukraine. Because arming Ukraine might prevent a war. And, you know, at, at some of these sanctions we should have done a long time ago. I mean, I would, you know, I would have been, and you know, end the symptom of kleptocracy, this kind of you know, Western Russian realm of financial collaboration that I think corrupts our economies too. I would have ended that a decade ago, but we didn't. We could do it now. Those are the things that I think really, and, and that, by the way, I, you know, this is why I don't like this realist versus idealist. You know, I think that's realistic. Do things that really affect him, not things that, you know, you know, give him a piece of paper. What does he need a piece of paper promising Ukraine won't be in NATO? How does that, how does that help his you know, I mean, maybe it might allow him for the moment to step down or so on, but it doesn't erase the problem for him that Ukraine, and not just Ukraine, but that, that, the, that um, you know, that, that, that sovereign democracies on his border pose for him. Hmm. Of course, directly providing arms to a military at war with Russia is pretty close to going to war with We're Russia. We're already providing them arms, and they're not at war yet. So my idea is to prevent the war. Right. Like, I would like to stop the war. I'm interested in genuinely stopping it, not in, um, not in um, prolonging it. Do you see in some ways that this could be a trap for Putin if he did try and invade and got stuck there? That it could be terribly destabilizing for him and his regime? That of he course. could actually be the nightmare he's trying to forestall? 
Of course. I mean, you know, you, 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 just to come back to something you said before that's true. So, so I was in Kiev in December, and Ukrainians were very divided about what they thought was going on. About half the people I spoke to said, this is a bluff. Mm-hmm. He'll never do it. And one of the reasons was exactly the one you just said. There aren't enough troops there. Right. They can't occupy the whole country. Yeah. You know, this could have terrible impact on him at yeah. home. Russians are also quite grumpy about COVID and a bad right. economy. Um, and so, yes, it could be a terrible mistake. I mean, you know, dictators do make terrible mistakes. Yes. This happened before. Um, you know, and then, as I said, there was another part who believed that he has always wanted to do it and he's chosen this moment because he thinks it's a good one. And by the way, I think the question of whether he could stand down, he can always stand down. The U.S. have offered him, would you like to negotiate, would you like to renegotiate you know, all the outdated arms contract, you know, this, this, you know, this, the SALT treaties and the various treaties that are all outdated. There is a huge amount the U.S. and Russia could talk about in terms of security, in terms of making Russia feel secure, in terms of weapon reduction. Blah, blah. We can do that if he wants to do it. But he hasn't, you know, what was strange about these negotiations in the last few weeks is he hasn't seemed to want that. You know, all they did is they marched in the room and said, we demand X, Y, and Z, and if you don't give it to us, we're leaving. That's not a negotiation. Right. He seems personally, viscerally, emotionally. He's very emotional about something, yes. Yeah. And obviously, you analyze it partly because he's afraid of his own position. But he, I think he's afraid. Could you, would you concede, let me tell you, would you concede <laughs> a little bit that he has uh, Russian pride, a sense of Russian greatness, that he is, like many people in any country, would feel patriotic? thoughts about this and that would lead as all these people predicted to counterproductive behavior in the future if we if we push it um do you see that as part even like something that he he feels strongly and something that also in terms of the russian public they also might feel uh do you think I, Russians I, themselves feel that Ukraine is part of the the mother country, and if they and if it were to if it were to go to NATO, it would be some huge? Nobody under forty feels that. Well, I mean, that doesn't I mean, mean no, that doesn't a lot mean, of people no, over forty who so, run the so country. So it's very hard for me to predict. I find it, and I've had this conversation a dozen times in the mm. last three weeks. I find it very hard to believe that Russians will be enthusiastic about a very bloody war with Ukraine. Mm. I just find it hard to believe. Mm. I I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't get it. Mm. I don't get how they would have an occupation of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that's stopped me from being very apocalyptic at this moment is this, I still don't see how that's popular. I don't see how it's successful. I don't see how it's long-term. And if I don't see it, then some people in Moscow must <laughs> not see it either. Yeah, there's probably a, a debate of, going on there as and well. And a lot of Russians I've talked to are also, you know, when this first came up in December, I had, I had a Russian friend staying with me, and I, and she, you know, she said, absolutely, I don't get it. You know, it makes no sense to me at all. Um, I mean, of course, people have, you know, when your country is at war and your soldiers are dying, you know, then people's moods shift, and we, I have no idea how that would, you know, a lot would depend on what happens. Um, again, if it's very successful and they conquer Kiev in three days and nobody fights back, and th- then yeah, I mean that. But if it's not, you know, if it goes on and on and it's very bloody and a lot of people die, then I don't well, see. We that all as... remember Iraq. Uh, a very yeah. quick early victory doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. Um, and nothing. And and that's why that's, that's why I, I I still some part of me finds it hard to believe he really wants to do this. It just doesn't. I don't see the logic of it. And I, I want to thank you a great deal for coming here and laying it all out the way you have. I think you make a very powerful case. 
I have some skepticism about it and concern, but um, you sure as hell know how to make an argument, and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for you coming and, 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 and airing it. We're trying to air some of the stuff. You may, I don't know whether you heard our Mearsheimer uh, conversation, but that would be a kind of polar opposite to you. Um, but I am thrilled and grateful to have you, and thank you for thank your passion you. thank on you. this. Thank you for letting me go on and on. Oh, Much no. appreciated. I I know when someone <laughs> knows more than I do, and I'm happy to listen. And so is our readers, and on behalf of them, I would I would thank you for coming in and talking. This Thanks, through. Andrew. You bet. We'll see you all next time. Let's hope. Right, we're recording this on Valentine's Day on Monday. We don't know what is going to happen in the next few hours. This will broadcast probably on Friday. And so, you know, this is just a historical moment. Um, we'll see <laughs> what happens this week. I'm praying for peace, uh, obviously. Uh, let's hope this can be diffused in some way. But um, whatever happens, we will see you next week, we hope. God bless and, and see you soon. Bye. Bye.